That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the so-called experts get it wrong. The battle to keep San Onofre shut down in Southern California keeps gathering speed and strength, with implications for the fights against nuclear reactors around the U.S. and possibly the rest of the world. Today's interviewee first is Friends of the Earth's nuclear campaigner Kendra Ulrich, who has faced down the NRC at their headquarters in Rockville, Maryland, and been working on the national level, while Southern California activists work on the state and local level. Learn about the strategy, the actions, frustrations, and progress we've been making. Plus, there will be allied reports on meetings with House Representative Henry Waxman of Los Angeles and actions that can be taken by anyone, anywhere, as suggested by nuclear videographer Myla Reason. All that will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 7, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. We're going to start out with an extended Nuclear Regulatory Commission DOC report. And that's because the only proper response when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is involved is DOC! The Palisades nuclear power plant on Lake Michigan was shut down after radioactive water was leaked into that precious body of water. The tank has leaked before, in 2012. That was when the plant had to shut down to repair the leak to the tank. This according to Nuclear Regulatory Commission spokesmodel Victoria Mittling. She said, this is a repeat occurrence. Sunday shutdown happened after the water tank exceeded a 38-gallon daily leak limit set after last year's shutdown. They allow 38 gallons a day of radioactive water to leak out of that thing? Does all of that end up in Lake Michigan as well? Could somebody do the math on how much water and how much radioactivity that might be? No, no, no. They can't speak about how much radioactivity was in the water because officials reportedly admit that they don't know exactly how radioactive the leaked water was. Yet, that doesn't stop the spokesmodels from saying, quote, 79 gallons of slightly radioactive water flowed into Lake Michigan. Other reports have it as 79 gallons of very slightly radioactive water leaked on Sunday, May 5th. Mildly radioactive water got into Lake Michigan. 79 gallons of diluted radioactive water. All of those adjectives being put to use to minimize what is a leak of radioactive water into one of the most important freshwater bodies in the world. The Huffington Post's Ryan Grimm reported that after Chairman Gregory Yasko, the former chairman of the NRC, ordered an investigation, Commissioner William Ostendorf allegedly, quote, shouted at the top agency investigator, Cheryl McCrary, in front of several NRC employees. Grimm went on to say that Ostendorf told McCrary that the inquiry would be a waste of resources. What resources? Fresh water from Lake Michigan? Gail Snyder from the Nuclear Energy and Information Service, the Midwest watchdog on nuclear issues, and our interviewee from last week's program, said, This facility is one of the oldest reactors in the country. The tank sits above the control room for the facility and was leaking into the control room. They had buckets in the control room collecting dripping water. NEIS met with Chairman Yasko of the NRC when he toured Palisades about a year ago. While he was touring the facility, just before the meeting with us, the Entergy staff did not tell him about the leak. Yuck, 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 isn't that one on the commissioner? Gail Snyder went on to say, Two months ago we met with the NRC Commissioner Magwood when he toured Palisades. I certainly never thought they would let the leak get to the point that it would leak radioactive water into Lake Michigan. But there you have it. And of course, they don't know how much radioactivity leaked because they don't have a measurement of it.
Meanwhile, Gail Snyder wanted to let you know that on May 19th, there will be a benefit for Shut Down Palisades campaign. It will be from 5 to 9 p.m. at the Old Dog Tavern in Kalamazoo, sponsored by Michigan Safe Energy Future Kalamazoo Chapter. They're suggesting a donation of $5 to $20. You know, looking back on what used to be said, wouldn't it be great if education had the military budget and the Pentagon had to throw a bake sale? This is a nuclear bake sale. Please attend if you can. The Duck Report is just getting started. Duke Energy's Akani Nuclear Power Plant, three aged nuclear reactors 30 miles from Greenville, South Carolina, is at risk of a meltdown should an upstream dam fail. If that were to happen, a meltdown of all three reactors on the scale of Fukushima meltdowns and subsequent containment failure are virtual certainties, according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission documents obtained by Greenpeace. The cost to upgrade the Akani nuclear plant site to address this triple meltdown threat is believed to be a billion dollars payable by Duke Energy. So at Duke's annual shareholder meeting on Thursday, May 2nd in Charlotte, North Carolina, Duke CEO Jim Rogers answered a question about his company's dangerous nuclear plants by not disputing the billion-dollar price tag, nor the need to better defend Akani from floodwaters. But what has the NRC done about it? Good question. According to Greenpeace, Duke and its regulators have known about this threat for decades and have utterly failed to address it. According to the documents, the potential flood height at Duke Energy's Akani nuclear plant is well above the height of Akani's flood walls, just like at Fukushima. This leaves important safety equipment vulnerable. Okay, NRC, you're supposed to protect people in the environment. Where are you? Now here are a couple of wins. Dominion Energy... As of today, May 7, 2013, has already begun reducing the output of the Kiwani Nuclear Power Station near Green Bay, Wisconsin. And if it stayed on schedule, the unit will be offline and therefore shut down permanently. This, according to company spokesmodel Jim Norville. We anticipate that all the used fuel will be out of the used fuel pool and into dry cask storage by about 2020. Here's some more timeline for you. The company plans to begin dismantling the site in June of 2069, with completion in August of 2072. Mm, Just in time for somebody's great-great-grandchildren. They should be lucky enough to be able to be born and be intact. Duke Energy is really getting it where it hurts. After years of delays and postponements, Duke Energy issued an obituary for a pair of long-planned reactors at the Shearson-Harris nuclear plant in Wake County, North Carolina. Can you have an obituary for something that never got born? Duke told the NRC that sluggish growth forecasts show new nuclear units won't be needed for at least 15 years. To which Nuclear Hot Seat adds... How about never needed? It's the second nuclear project Duke has canceled since acquiring Raleigh-based Progress Energy this past July. Earlier this year, Duke said it would not repair Progress's idled Crystal River nuclear plant in Florida. Keep buying them and shutting them down, Duke. We like that action from you. However... Applications for Duke's proposed Lee plant near Gaffney, South Carolina, and a site in Levy County, Florida, remain active. And now, in the first ever conjoined NRC Duck and Numbnuts of the Week report, a pair of radioactive goldfish have been found swimming in a lemonade pitcher in a restricted area of the Perry Nuclear Power Plant 40 miles from Cleveland. The presence of these two swimming intruders in the steam tunnel after a 43-day plant maintenance shutdown has led reactor owner First Energy Corp. on a hunt to find the owner. Federal regulators have started to ask whether plant operators can control access to radioactive areas as required by regulation. I mean, if two goldfish can break into a nuclear power plant and make it their home, how hard would it be for the rest of us? First Energy admits that security checks of employees involve detection of metal and bombs, not 
fish, presumably in plastic bags. In a desperate plea for understanding, Perry spokesmodel Jennifer Young said, the radioactivity was slightly above environmental detectable limits. Still, on early Thursday morning, both of the inch-and-a-half-long fish died. Spokesmodel Young went on to say, they did not have exposure to enough radiation to hurt them. It was probably due to lack of care before they got to the plant. The radiation could not have killed them. Girlfriend, get a grip, take a breath, change careers. The company and the NRC said this latest incident is no laughing matter and that the cartoon TV series The Simpsons, in which Blinky and Orange Fish supposedly had three eyes from radiation exposure, is definitely not the case here. They went on to say whoever was involved in the Perry incident will not get off as easily as nuclear worker Homer Simpson usually does. That's right. They cited the fictional cartoon character Homer Simpson in an official report on a breach of security by two goldfish. If that's not numbnuts, I don't know what is. So, okay, here's one where the NRC wasn't too terrible so far. And that is that the license applicant Nuclear Innovation North America, or NINA, has been told by the NRC that its staff had determined that NINA and its wholly owned subsidiaries continue to be under foreign ownership control or domination and thus do not meet the requirements of the Atomic Energy Act. Implicated in this was Japanese corporation Toshiba, They're still trying to find a way around the wording, but at least the Nuclear Regulatory Commission stuck to their guns on this one. We'll see how long it lasts. Okay, that's the end of the Duck Report. Four extended stories that will be linked to on the website, but you need to be aware of. The first is that the private company that manages the radioactive waste tank farms at the Hanford site ignored or missed numerous red flags over a 10-month period that showed a double-shelled tank holding some of the worst waste was leaking. Over much of that time, one Washington River Protective Solutions employee, that's WRPS, the employee's name is Mike Geffrey, continued to urge his superiors to take some sort of action. But from October 9, 2011, the day a leak detector alarm went off, until the first week of August 2012, when a scheduled video inspection documented the leak, WRPS let evidence of the problem pile up without taking action to confirm what the tank monitoring instruments were showing and what advice experienced employees like Geffrey were offering. The leak was not officially confirmed and revealed to the public until October 22nd of 2012. This is a long story filled with a great deal of infuriating information, and we're going to link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog, look under Nuclear Hot Seat number 99. Meanwhile, Nuclear Hot Seat would like to bestow our Jellyfish Award on Mike Geffrey. The Jellyfish Award is for instances of nuclear heroism above and beyond the call of duty. It's named for those intrepid warriors, the jellyfish, who quite often will swarm and be sucked into the intake conduits of nuclear reactors where they jam the works and shut the nuclear reactors down. And we figure if a spineless jellyfish can shut a nuclear reactor down, why can't the rest of us? So in honor of the jellyfish, we are giving Mike Geffrey of Washington River Protection Solutions the Nuclear Jellyfish Award. Thank you, Mike. Now, last summer, you may recall that there was a break-in at the exterior of Y-12 on the Oak Ridge property in Tennessee, supposedly one of the most secure nuclear weapons facilities in the United States. An 82-year-old nun, a house painter, and a drifter were there, and what they did was paint graffiti, spill human blood that had been donated in his will by an anti-nuclear activist, read from the Bible, and pray. This is what they did. This week, they're going on trial. Sister Megan Gillespie Rice, who is now 83, Michael Robin Wally, now 64, and Gregory Irwin Botier Obed, 57, will be on trial for what could be a long stretch in a federal penitentiary if their activism is not recognized as an honorable act that they did out of conscience. The Washington Post published a brilliant 
articulate, thorough, and poetic article by Dan Zak. And we're going to link to this, and I strongly urge you to read it. Well worth the time. The last two articles we're going to link to are extremely upsetting, and we need to know about it. The first is about the fact that humans were used for radiation experiments here in the United States. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the declassification of top-secret studies, the human radiation experiments, done over a period of 30 years in which the U.S. conducted radiation experiments on as many as 20,000 vulnerable U.S. citizens, including civilians, prison inmates, federal workers, hospital patients, pregnant women, infants, developmentally disabled children, and military personnel. Absolutely shameful. We're linking to this on the website. And finally, this story bears really deep investigation. It actually predates Fukushima and was posted on October 2nd of 2010 on VeteransToday.com. In it, Bob Nichols, the man who posted it, wrote that researchers have shown that uranium oxide, or depleted uranium, DU, travels the nerves from the nose to the brain, in the words of a University of Chicago doctor and researcher. A tiny amount of this radioactive poison quickly marches up your olfactory nerve right into the brain and keeps firing its loose electrons millions of times a day. The writer likened this to the shooting of 850 rounds of ammunition a minute with a range of 20 cells. What's really important about this story, besides the horror of it, is that it may be implicated in creating changes in the brain functioning of our returning soldiers from the Middle East who have been exposed to DU that we've used on quote-unquote our enemies and may be implicated further in the level of suicide and psychiatric complaints that have been coming out of those wars. Again, the link will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. A little bit of international news to round out the report today. In Japan, extremely radioactive rubble has been found atop of Fukushima Reactor Number 3. The debris was found on the north side of the top, which used to be where the operations were conducted. When this debris was loaded onto the remote-controlled truck, it measured 540 millisieverts per hour. Now, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, set a target to keep the site boundary dose below 1 millisievert per year, but now expects the dose at one point in the southern area to rise to 7.8 millisieverts, according to company officials. Now, dig it. They're trying to keep the dose to 1 millisievert per year. The boundary is at 7.8 millisieverts, which they're really not happy about, but the debris had 540 millisieverts per hour, not per year, per hour. Think of the magnitude. But TEPCO said on Tuesday that the radiation level around the plant's boundary is expected to exceed limits due to steps taken to address recently discovered leaks in the underground radioactive water. The company unveiled the estimate as it decided to transfer around 23,000 tons of polluted water stored inside leaky underground tanks to more reliable containers above ground. However, according to a tweet from former Fukushima worker Happy11311 and translated by Iori Mochizuki of Fukushima Diary, the plant area may have a land subsidence depending on the volume of water to pump up. I think TEPCO knows that. So basically, at the Fukushima site, TEPCO is engaging in a game of nuclear whack-a-mole. They're trying to put out a problem in one place, only for it to show up someplace else. We are all so screwed. Also from Fukushima Diary. According to Citizens Radiation Monitoring Station in Kakuda City in Miyagi Prefecture, high levels of cesium-134 and 137 were measured in local food. Kakuda is 74 kilometers, or about 45 miles, north of the Fukushima nuclear plant. Shiitake mushrooms were measured at 1,637 becquerels per kilogram, and bamboo shoots at 1,406 becquerels per kilogram. 
Japan limits exposure to radiation from food at still the ridiculously high level of 100 becquerels per kilogram. 100. The U.S. allows 12 times that, 1,200, and still both the mushrooms and the bamboo shoots were way over acceptable limits for both. Not that any of it is acceptable. And finally from India, as of Monday, May 6th, the Supreme Court of India has given the green light to start the Kudankalam nuclear power plant. I am in contact with some of the activists there and I'm working to bring you an interview on this. Hopefully it will be available in the next few weeks, Skype permitting. The battle to keep Southern California's San Onofre nuclear reactors permanently shut down is a David and Goliath battle. Now remember, David won. And we will win because currently, David is getting the upper hand in ways few would have foreseen even a year and a half ago. There are lessons to be learned here to inform other battles against nuclear power plants around the U.S. and, quite possibly, around the world. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat this week presents a three-part report on San Onofre, starting with Kendra Ulrich, who is the nuclear campaigner for Friends of the Earth. She's best known these days for being the only representative of Southern California to regularly appear at the NRC's San Onofre hearings at their headquarters in Rockville, Maryland, something she does with clarity and ferocity. Kendra Ulrich, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be here. First, tell us a little bit about how you see your role with Friends of the Earth as their nuclear campaigner. Well, my role with uh, Friends of the Earth is to work with both the grassroots as well as our political uh, strategy, really to stop the restart of San Onofre at this point. I mean, we work on other issues nationally. Our primary focus right now, though, has been San Onofre, so we've been working very intensely on that. And so we work at, at all levels to generate the kind of opposition that can actually stop the restart of both of these crippled reactors. Now, of course, we have seen you being the lone person in Rockville, Maryland, standing up to the NRC. When they so conveniently put hearings about Southern California's San Onofre on the East Coast, what is it like for you to be in that environment and be the one person from our side in person speaking truth to power? You know, I have no problem doing it. The thing that I find very frustrating about it is that By holding those meetings in Rockville, Maryland, they are fundamentally denying the public uh, that is most impacted by any decisions that are made about restarting either reactor, um, but Unit 2 obviously being the one that they're talking about restarting, you know, a true voice and true participation while presenting it that these are public meetings. So, you know, it's a public meeting in name only. And, you know, the people that have the most vested interest, whose lives, whose families, whose property are jeopardized by decisions that are being made, are not allowed to participate in those. And what's, you know, really important to understand is that those meetings that have been happening in Rockville are really the ones where they're discussing the content, the really important, hard-hitting technical issues that do affect the restart decision and that the public should have the right Uh, to, you know, fully participate in those meetings. You know, the ones that have happened here in Southern California have been these kind of dog and pony show, we're the NRC, we're going to tell you what we're doing and just up to, you know, get you up to date. Whereas the meetings in Rockville have been the meetings between the licensee and the NRC discussing the content of the restart. And in that case, it is very frustrating for me to know that, you know, I'm, I'm based out of D.C., the people who have Southern California as their home have the right to be there and be participating in that meeting, and they're not there. They're fundamentally denied a a role in that. What do you see as the leverage points that we can possibly be pressing with the NRC to keep supporting the no-restart decision that we want from them? Well, there's a couple different factors that are going on right now. As you know, Friends of the Earth filed a a petition with the NRC. We have two open proceedings currently before the NRC. No decisions have been made. Could you give a little bit more detail on what those petitions are? So on June 18th of last year, we filed a petition with the NRC arguing that the restart plan and the steam generator replacement required a license amendment 
the steam generators, as you know, were drastically altered, the replacements, from the original design. And they essentially self-destructed in less than a year and less than two years, respectively. So a defective design that was passed through because it wasn't subjected to the rigorous, critical, independent review that a proper license amendment process requires. So we argued that they should have had to go through the license amendment process for the design changes back when they were originally proposed, and also that the CAL process, uh, the NRC issued what's called a confirmatory action letter uh, to Edison, outlining very specific areas that they have to address before they can get a restart decision. So the CAL response that they gave in October uh, was in direct, you know, directly addressing those things just for Unit 2. Obviously, the twin reactor Unit 3 is so damaged that neither the NRC nor Edison are even discussing restarting that reactor. Right. That has been off the table from the start. Right, right. And, you know, what's what's really shocking about that is that, you know, Unit 2 has the exact same steam generators. And the fact that they are fundamentally acknowledging by not talking about it uh, the fact that Unit 3 is so damaged they cannot restart, and yet trying to convince the public that somehow its twin is safe to restart at this reduced power, et cetera, et cetera, is just, you know, assuming that the public is completely and totally asleep um, and assuming that the regulator is just, you know, their, their atomic lapdog, which they have been. In any event, going back to the petition, on November 8th of last year, the commission voted, the five commissioners voted unanimously to defer these two contentions, the restart uh, contention about that being a de facto license amendment process, and the uh, contention about the fact that they should have been required to go through the license amendment process previously to what's called a public review board petition. It's a 2.206, and uh, also to the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board. The Atomic Safety and Licensing Board is reviewing the, the CAL process question, so whether or not by allowing them to restart they would fundamentally be granting them restart permission outside of the scope of their license. And it's really important to understand, just like your driver's license, if someone has bad eyesight, they should have glasses, and it's in their license that they have to have glasses. It's there for safety. That's exactly the same way that, you know, a operating license for a nuclear reactor is supposed to function. These are licensing terms that are not just regulatory words. They're there to ensure safe operation which in and of itself, I mean, there are issues there. I mean, San Onofre obviously being very old, old technology, you know, um, 30-year-old reactors. As far as the, the restart contention, at the beginning of our oral argument, which was uh, held at the end of March, Edison announced that they were submitting a voluntary license amendment request. And this was really kind of an end run on their part to try to circumvent the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board decision on the CAL process as a whole. There are multiple areas where their restart plan doesn't comply with the terms of their license or are not evaluated in their final safety analysis report, and that's also a part of the license. So if they're not in compliance with that, there's things outside its scope, they need to go through the license amendment process for that. What they ended up doing was at the very beginning, they announced they were going to apply for this very narrow kind of wordsmithing license amendment and that they were going to go for a no significant hazard consideration for that license amendment. That was just about a month ago, wasn't it, that they put that one in? It was published in the Federal Register on the 16th of April, and that started the clock ticking on a public comment period on this license amendment request. The license amendment that they applied for limits power operation to 70%, which they actually don't have the technical data to support that they can safely restart at 70%. We're talking about, you know, some of the most severely damaged steam generators and with a globally unique problem. They have a problem that's never been seen before. So they don't actually have the technical data. They haven't provided it. Their own experts are in conflict as to what's causing that damage that, you know, they can somehow restart at 70%. So what the NRC has done has said, you know, well, this is just limiting them. So we actually don't need any technical basis 
for why we would limit power to 70%, and this is on a tube integrity technical specification, which is so a this light... Is, this is what the NRC is mm-hmm. saying back, at least in the double talk that's going back and forth on that. That's right. So what the NRC has essentially said, by preliminarily accepting their no significant hazard consideration and also at the uh, pre-meeting on this license amendment request, where I was there asking questions about it, was that they're evaluating these two things separately. So they're evaluating the restart plan separately from the context of the license amendment. Well, if we take the license amendment request about limiting power to 70% out of the context in which they're asking for it, which they're asking for that 70%, I mean, no one limits themselves to 70% arbitrarily. They're asking for it because they cannot restart at 100% power, which is what's currently required by the terms of their license, because they have incredibly damaged critical equipment that provides a key radiation barrier. And so by removing that and just taking it as, you know, changing a, a few words in their license, the NRC was able to justify accepting that this has no significant hazard rather than addressing this issue within the context that they're asking for it, which is, that they have very damaged equipment and they're looking to remove a critical licensing barrier from preventing them from restarting the Unit 2 reactor. So just taking it back to your earlier question, and I know this was, that was a really long response, the most critical thing that the public can do right now is to get public comment into the NRC asking them to deny this very narrow license amendment request and no significant hazard consideration, and asking them to hold Edison accountable to ensuring that they have to go through the license amendment process and the appropriate one without the no significant hazard consideration for all of the areas where they don't comply with the terms of their license. The really important thing to understand about the no significant hazard determination is that if they get that, That means that any public hearing that happens would happen after they get the license amendment, which means it's essentially no more than, you know, the meetings in Southern California. It is a dog and pony show. So even though independent experts would show that, you know, there is a greater than minor increase in the risk of accident, and we know that because we've been working with some of the world's leading independent nuclear engineers, the license amendment would still go forward and it would still allow them to continue to restart because the uh, no significant hazard is unassailable. There's no remedy within the agency itself. And, of course, once they get that restarted, the momentum's on their side to keep it started. Mm-hmm. And we have no idea, well, we do have a sense of what the danger would be if they did so because they were already so close to the leak, which was caught on uh, January 31st, I think, of 2012, but they were already close to that getting out of control. Sure. What ended up happening, what was really shocking about what came out of uh, the Augmented Inspection Team report, and um, that's a special NRC task force that was deployed in the wake of the uh, radiation release on the 31st of January last year, was that the NRC AIT came back, their Augmented Inspection Team, and said that a full-blown tube rupture could have been the first indication of a problem. So the fact that it manifested in a minor leak rather than a full-blown tube rupture accident was luck. And, you know, that's something that's really been lost. The other thing that's, that's really important for the public to understand is the fact that, you know, we have, again, not only is it a globally unique tubeware issue, where they've got, you know, problems that we've never seen before in the history of the nuclear industry, is that at San Onofre, when they did the pressure testing, the reason they deployed that, that AIT was because they had eight tubes fail pressure testing in Unit 3. Now, there have never been anywhere the failure of more than one tube. They've never had any tube made of the tube alloy fail pressure testing ever. So we have two firsts that indicate really, really severe problems with these reactors. So not only very rapid degradation, but a situation where, you know, multiple tubes are failing. We've never seen tubes made of this tube alloy fail before. So very, very concerning issues. And that's why that AIT was initially deployed. 
And then they came back and said that we got really lucky that this was a minor leak uh, as opposed to, you know, a rupture. I love the fact that they're saying, gee, weren't we lucky? I think luck is the last thing we need to depend on when it comes to a nuclear reactor. Sure. And, you know, in this situation, I mean, we have McFarland saying that we're not going to restart this reactor as an experiment. When, in fact, exactly, you know, the restart plan itself is an experiment. Edison has a hypothesis that they can restart at 70%. They're scrambling to try to justify that in some way to the NRC. Without, I mean, the, the data that they're using to support the restart plan and why 70% is safe is experimental. It's never been used in an operational assessment before. And we've seen, so there's no empirical evidence, there's no data to back that up that we can say, you know, here's from industry experience, we can say that this is true, that there will be, you know, improved performance of these steam generators at 70%. It's all experimental research data. So, you know, they're trying to prove their hypothesis. So they're proposing to restart for five months, assuming that their theory is correct, and then shut it down and, and inspect. Well, you know, that's the definition of an experiment. The thing that was even more shocking was that they came back and said at the last NRC meeting when they were talking about this license amendment request that they plan to do that four or five times over the next two years. In other words, start, stop, start, stop. That's right, which is the opposite of a reliable energy source. But it is also an experiment. And the other thing that's extremely concerning about that is that the inspection report, so they're going to stop and inspect, but the inspection reports won't even be given to the NRC until 60 days after they've entered mode four. And what that means is 60 days after they're powering back up in the next you know, experimental test run, then they will give the inspection report to the NRC. So it'll already have been back online for two months before the NRC has any data about what, about what they found while it was stopped. That's right. That is, in, that is the definition of insanity. Right, exactly. It is the definition of a dangerous nuclear experiment with Southern California. In terms of a decision being made, this is going up to the commissioners, correct? Well, right now what we're waiting for is the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board to rule on our contention on the Cal process. Once they make a determination, how will that yay or nay impact how this proceeds? Well, it kind of depends on what, what they come back with. So we're going to wait to see, you know, what their opinion is. But, you know, because there's a, there's a couple different things. They're evaluating our standing and they're evaluating the, the Cal process itself. What one would hope is that they come back, they ask some very difficult questions, but, you know, that they come back and say that, yes, this is a de facto license amendment, and therefore Southern California Edison must apply for license amendments for these various areas where they don't comply with the terms of their license. But it, it, it will depend on what they say, and certainly we don't want to do any judicial mind reading. So, you know, we're, we're waiting to hear on that. As far as the restart plan itself and the Cal process, which has kind of been this simultaneous proceeding through the NRC staff, we're expecting they'll probably be making a decision within the next month or two. Edison has been pushing very hard for restart uh, in June, although, as we know, the June 1st restart date has slipped. What is now on their part, not that we're buying into this, but what are they now saying is the earliest they would want to have a restart? I think that they are still pushing for that June 1st, but it certainly seems, I mean, we had what headlines uh, several weeks ago saying, you know, it, it seems pretty unlikely that the June 1st restart date. So they haven't given another date for when restart will be, you know, in their ideal world. But we're expecting, you know, that will be pushed back sometime later in June. In any event, um, you know, kind of going back to, you know, the Cal process. So, you know, NRC staff are still, you know, going through their evaluation. And we'll see, you know, what they come back with. So we're expecting there will be another NRC meeting in Southern California to explain their findings of their inspections. Another dog and pony show, in other words. That's right. 
That's right. With so the no, comments of the activists being marginalized into a second half after a break when the first half is maybe filled up with union employees who are being bribed by Southern California Edison. <laughs> and getting good Costco cards for that. Yes, $100 Costco uh, <laughs> cards. Plus, they got lunch. Isn't that amazing? Uh-huh. And free br- bus rides there and all of that. Yes, of course. Um in any event, yeah, that was that was kind of a shocking. I've I've never uh, can't say I've ever seen anybody give Costco cards to to people to attend an NRC meeting before. <laughs> they're desperate yes, and they right. don't have a lot going for them at mm. this point, and there's a tremendous amount of scrambling being seen. I, I want to touch on something that we haven't discussed yet, and that is given the political makeup of the NRC commissioners, meaning we have four of them who are deeply allied with the nuclear industry, and then we have our new chair, Allison McFarlane. What do you think is the likelihood that they will decide against a restart? The NRC in and of itself has a history of acquiescing to the industry, and really, I think on this issue, they are at a crossroads where either they are going to prove themselves to be this lapdog for industry, or they're going to step up and actually become a regulator. And, you know, that's a decision they will have to make. Now, as far as whether the commissioners will actually be brought into this, that remains to be seen. So the decision does not get made at the commissioner level. It's a level below that that actually makes the determination? That's right. So for the oversight panel that's currently evaluating this CAL process, there are staff from Region 4 and there are staff from the Nuclear Reactor Regulation, which is a branch of the NRC that handles licensing. So it will be likely the directors of, or the director of the NRR and the administrator of Region 4 that will make that final determination. So the oversight panel will make a recommendation. Now, the only way that uh, the commission would be brought into it is say there was disagreement, there might be a situation where the commissioners would feel they had to intervene. Or, you know, quite frankly, if the commissioners don't like the decision that the staff make, they could intervene and override, you know, staff opinion on this. So, you know, there's a lot of balls in the airs and a lot of different angles that, you know, could happen. But as it stands right now, you know, the oversight panel is charged with, you know, making a recommendation to the Region 4 administrator as well as the NRR administrator, and then they will uh, make the decision. So is it Art Howell who will be at the head of that decision-making process? Art Howell and Eric Leeds is the director of the NRR. And they're both engineers, aren't they? I believe so, yes. I don't have their CVs, so but I would I would certainly hope if they're in positions like that at the NRC that they are engineers themselves. So. I know that our Howell is. I'm not sure about the other one. Looking at the way this is going, it does seem that it's a point of public visible definition of the NRC, as you put it so well a few moments ago. If you were to be taking bets on this right now, which way do you think it's going to go? From a totally cynical perspective and just knowing the history of the uh, agency itself, I would guess that they would be moving in the direction of approving the restart in spite of all of the uncertainties. But to qualify that, there have been some very good requests for additional information, questions at public meetings that we've seen some of the staff asking. It could go either way. You know, we're waiting to see that, but just knowing the history of the industry and particularly, I mean, the uh, meeting that we had in Rockville with the NRR staff and Edison about this license amendment request was incredibly disheartening, I think, for everybody watching. And, in fact, I saw it reported that the public asked more questions than the NRC staff did. You know, it was very, very obvious that they were totally and completely complacent and really, you know, looked like they were asleep at the regulatory wheel during this meeting. If that's an indication of their rigorous review of this restart proposal and of Edison's license amendment requests and the fact that they, within hours, essentially, accepted the license amendment request and the finding of no significant hazard preliminarily and did that in the face of totally and completely disregarding a direct request from the chair, the congressional chair of their oversight committee, Senator Barbara Boxer, 
all of those things indicate to me that they are moving towards this, you know, rubber stamp atomic energy lapdog for the industry trajectory for this. So if people wish to do something, first of all, to get in touch with the NRC or support the no restart decision, mm-hmm. how can they go about doing that? Well, one of the biggest things that you can do immediately is go online, Google the Federal Register. As soon as you get on the Federal Register site, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a search box. Just type in San Onofre. The first thing that will come up is their license amendment request. You can click on that, and it says Comment Now. You click on that, and you can fill in your public comments. And that is the most important thing that people can do right now is to get as many public comments as possible into the NRC asking them to reject Edison's narrow license amendment request, require that they have to go through the proper license amendment process for all of the different areas where they don't comply with the terms of their license, and that they deny this no significant hazard uh, consideration, which is you know, truly ridiculous, uh, given the context in which they're asking for it. Is there any wording available on the Friends of the Earth site or that can be provided for people who simply want to have something to guide the comments that they send in? Sure. Yeah, we would be happy to provide guidance for comments. Um, There's nothing up on the site currently, but we would be happy to do that. How long is the comment period still open for people to be able to respond? It is open until May 16th. May 16th. That's coming so up pretty fast. So it is coming up very fast, and we need as many public comments as possible into the NRC on this. If people can submit their comments, send the link to their friends and family, send the link to their networks and their uh, email list, asking people to make comments on this, that is the most important thing that people can do right now. I think if they make the decision for restart, they're going to have a firestorm on their hands that they're not going to be able to contain. That's right. I, I, I would agree with that, absolutely. I think that the, the level of public scrutiny and outrage over this, I think that people will be uh, absolutely up in arms, particularly considering that it's not in the best interest of ratepayers to restart either. <laughs> nor, nor human beings or life right, right. of any sort. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. So from every from every angle, it's a bad deal. Kendra, it's so terrific to have somebody with your ferocity, your clarity, and tenacity in this position following up on all of the various intricate pieces with the NRC. If we were to want to contact you or support you somehow through Friends of the Earth, what would be the best way to do that? You can always contact me at my email. Kulrich at foe.org. That's K-U-L-R-I-C-H at foe.org. You got it. And uh, that's the best way to reach me. But, um, you know, always so happy to answer questions and to work with folks that are, you know, on the ground here. Everybody that I've worked with here has been absolutely wonderful, and I feel very privileged to have the opportunity to be working with all of these community members. Kendra Ulrich, thank you so much for being part of Nuclear Hot Seat. Great. Thank you, Libby. It was wonderful talking to you. Activist in Southern California, best known in the Battle of San Onofre for her iPhone videos, up close and personal at all the major hearings and demonstrations. She recently created an opportunity for herself to directly address Representative Henry Waxman, a Democrat from Los Angeles and a ranking member on the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. Our thanks to Mary Beth Brangan and Eon.net for use of the audio portion of their video. Here's Myla asking the questions, and you'll hear Henry Waxman responding. Southern California Edison is seeking permission from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to restart its badly damaged San Onofre nuclear reactor, one of them, within a matter of weeks. As you know, the aging power plant is located on on our fragile shoreline in a tsunami zone riddled with earthquake faults. A senior San Onofre engineer testified recently that the facility is not designed to withstand current earthquake risks. What is wrong with a regulatory process that can result in restart two years before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has completed its ongoing work of promulgating regulations based on lessons learned from Fukushima tsunami and seismic hazards? 
There's nothing wrong with that, and that's exactly what we ought to insist on. We want a full review uh, of the lessons learned from Fukushima. That uh, San Onofre power plant, one of the power plants there, was fairly new. I don't remember exact details, but it wasn't that old, and yet it wasn't operating appropriately. And when the head of the NRC testified before our committee, I asked, why didn't you know about it? How did this happen without the NRC reviewing it? And they said that uh, they, uh, they are aware of it now, and they pledged to us that they're not going to allow San Onofre to start those power plants again, any of them, until they've done a complete and thorough review. It's not going to be a matter of weeks. It may not happen at all. But as a result of that, uh, I wrote a letter along with the other Democrats on the Energy and Commerce Committee to the Cal ISO to tell them that they ought to be sure that we're ready for the summer. Because if we don't have the electricity uh, from San Onofre, and I don't expect we will, we better be sure that we have the ISO looking at the grid so that we don't have uh, uh, energy blackouts. Yeah. Congressman, I was told by the NRC that they will not wait for their analysis of tsunami and, and seismic risks before they make their decision on restart. They're two years away from analyzing and promulgating those regulations, and they said they will not wait those two years. They're going to base it on answers to a confirmatory action letter, and it can happen in a matter of weeks, according to a recent uh, NRC committee meeting, that public meeting that uh, that I witnessed and asked questions at. So I'd like to get. Well, you know, I appreciate that clarification. Uh, I don't know that it's tied to the review of lessons learned from Fukushima. But they are going to have to come in and show us that based on all the science and inspections and all the, the, the bells and whistles that we need for protection, that they're not going to let the, the, the nuclear power plant reopen. And we'll call them before the committee and find out if they're going to make a decision without fully vetting all the concerns that they ought to be looking at. I caught up with Myla to ask her for her thoughts on the questioning of Waxman and how we, in this community, can best communicate with him to support the shutdown of San Onofre. You know, uh, Waxman was saying that um, he was surprised to hear that I believe that the NRC was signaling that they would give permission to Edison to restart San Onofre within a matter of weeks. He said it would not be a matter of weeks. It may not happen at all. Was that naivete on his part, do you think? I don't know. But today the news came out that the Inspector General's Office of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has launched a special investigation. And I think that it's around that uh, letter that surfaced from Mitsubishi about the um, discussions that they had about avoiding a license amendment hearing by not doing the engineering fixes that were required to prevent the um, steam generators from rattling and shaking and damaging the tubes and falling apart as they did. So I, I think that Waxman actually may have been privy to a little bit more information than the public is privy to, and I think that that may have been why he said that it may not open at all. And, you know, in a recent meeting with his shareholders, Ted Craver, the president of Edison International, the parent company of Southern California Edison, recently uh, talked about how if they don't get permission for restart, that they may decommission both Units 2 and Unit 3 by the end of the year. Right, and that was remarkable because it's the first time Edison has made the slightest noise towards admitting that it might be possible that they will not restart. You had mentioned that there was a good follow-up tactic to take with Waxman that you thought would really yield... Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's the thing. Waxman was saying, look, they're not going to give permission to restart unless they can prove that it's absolutely safe. Well, of course, they're going to claim that it's absolutely safe if they give permission. He said that they're going to do a thorough investigation and inspection and 
all of that, and they're going to claim that they've done that thorough investigation and inspection. I think that what we have to say is that just in case they got something wrong, shouldn't we have a viable evacuation plan for everyone in harm's way prior to giving them permission to restart the plant? You know, I think that we have to insist that that be a part of it, that we have to uh, say, look, uh, we're, we're pleased to see that you have all of this confidence in the work of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but we don't believe that they're infallible. And just in case they're wrong and something terrible goes wrong at San Onofre, shouldn't we have a viable evacuation plan for everyone in harm's way? That's what we have to push for because you know that the millions of people who are in harm's way will not be able to escape. Anybody who knows the 405 freeway knows that fact. Under the best of circumstances, it's a parking lot. Right. And what if there's an earthquake? Uh, You know, the uh, plant is not designed to withstand more than a 7.0. It was was retrofitted for the 7.0, and there's some people, uh, earthquake, you know, and, and there's some people who claim that those retrofits aren't particularly reliable. The original specs were for a 6.0. But there's a possibility that we could have a 7.1 or a 7.9 or an 8.0 or a tsunami, uh, you know, that's generated because of an earthquake offshore. There are so many things that could go wrong. Right. So to not have a safety plan, a safety net for those 8 million plus people who are most directly within the 50 mile evacuation radius and in harm's way is, you know, it's playing Russian roulette with our lives. And, and the thing is, is that 50-mile radius is really quite arbitrary. If you look at the data about how far the radioactivity concentrated amounts of cesium, radioactive cesium and radioactive iodine, traveled much further than 50 miles in the wake of the Fukushima meltdown. The 50 miles is just arbitrary. Radiation doesn't stop at that boundary. Of course not. And all of Los Angeles, where we are, uh, would definitely be inundated by radioactive contamination. It would be impossible for a a viable... I mean, what, what would it take? They'd have to bring in, like, thousands upon thousands of helicopters and airlift people out within a matter of an hour or two. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. Evacuation is impossible. And how irresponsible is it to say that you're going to allow this experiment to go forward and endanger the lives of millions upon millions of people, not to mention indefinitely contaminating Southern California, contaminating the agricultural areas and the businesses and people's homes. And the Port of Los Angeles supplies goods for a great portion of the country. Okay, so let's jump to what people can do. If we were to reinforce this with Henry Waxman, that we need to have a viable evacuation plan for everyone in harm's way, what do you feel would be the best way to do this? I think that uh, calls and letters, emails. You go to his website and put in the message, shouldn't we demand a a viable evacuation in place before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission gives Edison permission to restart its damaged San Onofre nuclear power plant. Clear enough. That was Myla Reason, and before that, Kendra Ulrich of Friends of the Earth, keeping us up to date on the Battle of San Onofre. Sounds like we need a song to tell that tale. The Ballad of the Battle of San Onofre. Any takers? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 7, 2013. Material for this week's show came from enenews.com, Fukushima Diary and Yori Mochizuki, youthkiawaz.com, Kyoto News, NHK, platz.com, Michael Galatly and the Aiken Standard, Huffington Post, WSBT, WSJM, Michigan Live, Last week's interviewee Gail Snyder of the Nuclear Energy Information Service, Business Week, Washington Post, Cleveland.com from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, NewsObserver.com, Mary Beth Brangan and Eon.net, EcoWatch.com, CityWatchLA.com, UTSanDiego.com, 
VeteransToday.com, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, World Nuclear News, King 5 News in Washington, Tokyo Electric Power Company, and the outstanding Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications, all rights reserved, but you have permission to reuse. It is granted to you as long as you include proper attribution to me in the podcast, the website, and the email address. Bonus points if you pronounce my name right. Libby. Libby. Libby.